Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. The phone rang at like 11 o'clock at night and it was one of my brother's best friends, Robert. And he came from a very, very poor family, broken family. There was a point where he had lived in a car um, and I remember there was, it had even been a point where I, my brother and I wanted my parents to adopt him. And I remember crying over it because he would come to our house sometimes and stay for two or three days. And, and I hear my dad answer the phone and he's like, Hey, Robert, what's going on? Okay. I'll be there in a minute. And so it was Robert telling my dad, Hey, me and a bunch of guys, we went over to, uh, this town about 30 minutes away, have a drive-in movie theater at like midnight or 11 o'clock, they play sort of a racy film and these guys snuck in and they got caught. And he's like, I've, I'm, I'm at the police station. I need you to come get me. And my dad's like, okay, I'll be right there. And, and then he goes, oh, by the way, Lang is here with me, which is my brother. <laughs> and my dad was like, what? I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Toby, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I am really excited to be here. Thank you. Well, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually found out about you by way of our mutual friend and uh, former guest, Selena Sue. And, um, you know, when I found out what you're up to, I was immediately intrigued by it. But before we get into all of that, I want to start asking, what did your parents do for work and how did that end up shaping and influencing the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? Okay, great question. My dad runs a, let's see, 1916, so 104-year-old um, company that's now really uh, a telecommunications company, kind of a little bit more broad. It originally was my great-great-grandfather starting a landline telephone company in South Arkansas. And so my dad took it over when he was 27, when his grandfather died and left it to him. Um, he's now 70, what, two and still going strong with it. And they do everything from what's left of landline telephones, which is not a lot, uh, but they also do internet, cellular telephone, and now they do telephone utility work. So they bury fiber optic cable. They provide internet service to schools and hospitals and, and have really been instrumental in connecting a lot of the state of Arkansas, which is really rural. Um, and now they're going into other states, which is exciting. Mm. So that definitely, definitely coming from that entrepreneurial background influenced me in so many ways. So Combine that with the fact that my mom, even though she is not, um, hasn't worked as a creative, is very much a creative. And so she was a stay at home mom most of my childhood. She owned a dress shop at one point. She ran a drugstore that was another family business and did the buying for that at one point. But she always was 
um, very intent on making our home a certain way, creating beautiful meals, holiday decorating, like all of the things that she felt like made our home really not only unique and personal, but made it really work for us. So when I combined both of those things, the business mind and the creative piece, um, it was a perfect kind of melting pot or environment for me. And so the interesting thing is I went on, I love education. My parents are both strong proponents of formal education, um, which I have some of that and some other, you know, do it yourself learning online that I've combined with it. But I have an accounting degree and an interior design degree and an MBA. And so it's kind of really, you can see a direct line from the path I took to the influence that both of my parents have had on me. And one of the the best things they both did was they both just believed in me and always said yes to anything that I wanted to do, making it possible. So if I wanted to, I mean, as a child, I was having literally lemonade stands where I was making $80. I remember in the 70s selling like country time lemonade and some brown edge wafer cookies from the store. But they were always right behind me when I was like, I want to sell this. I want to do this. And in high school, I got certified in aerobics and went and pitched myself to the local uh, rec center. So, and they literally, no matter what idea I had, they were like, how much is it going to cost? How much money do you need? How much time do you need? How can we support you? Let's do it. Um, And I think all of that led to the kind of major action taking I've done in my own life and in my, my own business. Yeah. Did they give you any particular career advice? Because I always wonder if, if somebody grows up the, the you know child of an entrepreneur, are they different than you know other parents? I mean, you mentioned that your parents believed uh, in the value of formal education. Of course, being Indian, yes. that's like just naturally embedded into the way we grow up. Yeah, especially because I'm the son of a college professor. But I wonder what advice did they give you about making your way in the world as an adult? Yes. So this was the advice we joke about this, and we joke that they they said it a few too many times for me. So they said ever literally. Every night, like tucking us into bed, my brother and I, don't get married until you're at least 25 and you have at least one college degree. And part of that came from the fact that my parents married very young. Like it literally was normal um, in the, let's see, 60s, I guess, when they married in Arkansas to get married right out of high school, high school sweethearts. And they're still married 50 something years later, but they knew the challenges of that. And they wanted us to have the freedom to, um, and the foundation both to have a college degree, which they thought was kind of the minimum requirement. Um, and then really just give ourselves some time and space to become who we wanted to be before we started getting involved in a marriage or a relationship at that level. Um, that's that they had experienced doing so young. So we really do joke about it because I got three college degrees, two bachelors and a master, and I didn't get married until I was 30. So I'm like, you told, you came in, you must've come into my room like twice a night because my brother, I think was, has one college degree. He's an accountant for my dad's company. And, um, he got married at 25, but the, the advice definitely stuck with me. And the whole point was just, you know, make your way, choose what you want, decide what lights you up, be willing to go for things, be willing to work hard. And all of that came through those simple messages of at least get one college degree and don't get married till you're at least 25 years old. Well, I mean, getting married when you're 30 in Arkansas is like sacrilegious, isn't it? Oh my gosh. Yes. It's like, what is wrong with her? (laughs) Poor Toby. What's wrong with her? Which really turned into, wow, she really likes to work. 
She really likes to go for things. And and I'm often, I mean, good and bad, because there's the the pros and cons of of loving your work and kind of the workaholism piece to the co- other side of the coin. But I really became known for a person who was a very hard worker, who was willing to go create and build and make things. And um, so it, that made it a little more palatable to people. Uh, but definitely not really, not at all normal. And um, I would suggest or guess that most people didn't really understand it. Um, you know, at the time I just had my 18th wedding anniversary. So it's been a little while ago. So it's even different than waiting till you're 30 to get married now. Um, Uh you know, so definitely sacrilegious is a good word. (laughs) You mentioned 18th wedding anniversary and the fact that your parents have been married for 57 years. So I, I had to ask, what makes something last for 57 years, particularly like in the context of, you know, somebody who is married to an entrepreneur, which is a life of inevitable ups and downs? Yeah. So, um, gosh, I think what makes it last, I, you know, it's, it's part, um, well, let's just say this, the things that we think makes marriage last or make something like that last is all the like magic and the chemistry and the stuff on that comes on the front end of a relationship. Um, and this is true, I think for clients or for a marriage or any other relationship, that stuff is just sort of the hype that whole honeymoon phase. And it's in allowing that to sort of come and go as magical as it was. And then knowing kind of the rest of this is being willing to show up when it's boring, when it's monotonous and just being intentional about it, making decisions. We're going to stay together. This is not an option for us to not. So what do we need to pour into it? How do we need to meet the other person where they are? And, and for one thing for me, that's worked really well in my own marriage Um, is allowing other people to show up almost without expectation. Now, this doesn't mean that people can just like do anything they want and and have a thriving relationship, but it's more about, for me, meeting my own needs, filling myself up and not expecting another person to sort of fill the void. We all know the you complete me line from Jerry Maguire, which I think is kind of the opposite of what works. It's more like I complete me and you complete you. And then when we show up together, we can actually have a really fun time or we can do something really great together. And I think that's what my parents had to learn because they got married so young. And I think there were a lot of years that were more uh, built on expectations of, I need you to do this or you should make me happy. And I think what they learned over the years is, no, it's an inside job. Uh, And when you can do that for yourself, then everything can come together and work beautifully. And, And to my parents' credit, both of them, they definitely are into a lot of personal development. I learned so much of that at a young age. In fact, <laughs> one of the other family jokes, uh, it's not a joke, it's the truth, but we laugh about it, is that they came to me when I was about 12 years old and they're like, okay, we think it's time you start listening to some Dr. Wayne Dyer cassette tapes. These these are going to be really good for you. Uh, and of course, what 12-year-old in <laughs> yeah. South Arkansas with like a Walkman cassette headset that was wanting to listen to, I don't even remember, like, you know, the Gap Band or Bobby Brown or Madonna or something is like, sure, let me spend hours a week listening to Dr. Wayne Dyer. But I'm so glad that they, you know, that they did that and that they exposed me 
to that kind of thinking and that we can become better versions of ourselves and and we can do hard things and we can dream big and figure out the path to it. And honestly, my dad still spends so much of his time listening to some of his favorites like, you know, Zig Ziglar and Jim Rohn and and uh, Earl Nightingale and all these these t- names that I've heard as long as I can remember. Um, and so they've really always kind of believed and set me on that path of it's a it's an inside job. Mm-hmm. So I, I love the fact that you mentioned this is an inside job, which to me, I think is a fascinating question for somebody who is also an des- interior designer by trade, which is largely an outside job. Yeah. Uh, but what I wonder is why is it that you think as you know, a culture, we're so prone to seek uh, internal validation from external accomplishment? Oh, gosh, I think it's because it's easier. <laughs> In theory, like it doesn't work. Yeah. It doesn't work. It never works. But it, it feels easier. And I think also our culture, a lot of times, especially the American culture, um, has has taught us this, that again, just starting with marriage, like you find this other person so they can make you happy, right? Or you get a job so it can make you happy, or you get the right client so then they can make you happy and validate you. And I think that the fascinating thing is that we learn over time that none of that actually works. Like, you know, when I was building my design business and I would have all these milestones to get published nationally on the cover of a magazine. And then I wanted product lines, which I now have five of. And, you know, I wanted, I wanted to hit all these milestones. And just like so many people, you hear that they hit those and it leaves you at least somewhat empty. Not that they weren't fun, not that they weren't amazing, but the feeling you were looking for from those things doesn't show up from those things. So I definitely think it's ingrained in us that we we're supposed to search from that outside of us, that whole you complete me thing. But I think also because there's a level of essentially kind of um, emotional child in each one of us that we have to take less responsibility when it's somebody else's problem, right? So we it, it's just it's so much easier to delegate our happiness to other people to delegate our success to other people, which never works. So we know a lot of you have been listening to us for years, and it means the world to us. What we do here at The Unmistakable Creative wouldn't be possible without the support of our listeners. If the podcast has been valuable to you, one of the best ways you can support us is to subscribe to Unmistakable Creative Prime, which gives you access to transcripts, all of our courses, monthly coaching calls, live chats with our guests, and an incredible community of creatives. And it costs less than you spend on a cup of coffee every month. For the school teachers and people in our education system, Prime is completely free to help you with this transition to teaching online. We've packed it with a ton of value and actionable content, and we hope you'll check it out. Just go to unmistakablecreative.com slash prime to learn more. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash prime. One other thing I wonder is you mentioned this is a family business. It sounds like, you know, that has been inherited from generation to generation. Mm So, you know, you know, I think that many of us, when we see that in our mind, the first place we probably go is, oh, generational wealth, um, which yes. may not be the case. But having sort of been in this environment of having this company go, you know, from generation to generation, mm-hmm. what did your parents teach you about money and wealth growing up? Oh, interesting. So I've done a ton of, um, I've done a ton of personal work on money mindset, um, personally. And the fascinating thing is, let's see, what did they teach me? I I know what I had to overcome. Let me start there. What I had to overcome personally, because I didn't just go into the family company, even though it influenced me, I started my own company. 
Um, what I had to kind of overcome is that my dad is not the the guy with the money. <laughs> like in my mind, like he was the guy with the money or that company was the the thing with the money. And I was just the person striving. And at some point in my future, I would grow up into the person that also had money. And so in one sense, they taught me that you absolutely can create money with your value, which I love that they taught me that. But then I sort of had to piece together the part. And again, kind of that emotional adulthood thing and stepping into taking responsibility for it. I had to learn on my own that it wasn't just time passing. It wasn't just, you know, like we don't have to wait for my company to be four generations old. It's all about taking responsibility in the moment to create money with the value you put out in the world. So I definitely think they they taught me that it was possible. One of the other things they taught me that I love that they taught me was a high, high level of gratitude for the people that were, are, and still are, a lot of them, my dad's and, and that company's customers. So I remember growing up, I, I was, I mean, especially in the tiny community we lived in of 1,600 people, we were definitely one of the more affluent families, but they never let us kind of feel entitled to that. Um, so they connected it with hard work. They they connected it with the fact that it really was a privilege to serve all of these other people. Um, and pretty much ingrained in my brother and I to always have a sense of, of gratitude because truly everyone we met, on, even walking down the street or in the grocery store at that time in our lives, was probably one of our customers. Most everybody had a telephone. Um, and so it was not to take it for granted to make the connection between, um, you know, how hard you have to work to create a certain amount of money, really connecting the dots with, um, you know, we can go write a check for something or pay cash for something that's a hundred or 200 or $300, which was a ton of money at that time and understanding how many people it takes to pay a telephone bill for us to have that money trickle all the way down to our family. So I do love that whole piece of connecting the dots for us and being so, so grateful for those people that that essentially said yes to what we were offering and, and in turn provided us with the opportunities we had in our lives. Hmm. So, uh, you know, what that makes me wonder is why you end up with somebody who has the attitude that you did and sort of the belief system that you were raised with. And, you know, not to pick on Paris Hilton, it's just the first person that comes to mind. <laughs> um, but you get that as the yeah. sort of polar opposite effect, you know, like I remember, you know, the comedian David Cross basically described um, Nicole Richie and Paris Hilton as two things that I won't say publicly on air because it would be incredibly offensive, but literally <laughs> that's the way he described the simple life. Yeah. Um, and I, I thought that was really telling, but you know, I think you're such an interesting contrast to that. Uh, why does that happen? And then, you know, I think the other thing to, to, you know, acknowledge what you mentioned about the, the phone and, and how many people it takes, there's this sort of, interdependent nature of how the world operates. And I think that we tend to overlook that until we find ourselves in a situation like the one we're in, where you realize yes. that there yes. is a profound level of interdependency, regardless of how rich or poor somebody is. And yet that doesn't get acknowledged. It takes a pandemic for us to acknowledge that. 
Yeah. So, so let's see. The first question was like, really, what's kind of like, how do I have my attitude versus, yeah, versus someone the entitlement like, that comes yeah. out of, you know, some, you know, somebody who just basically feels like, oh, this is what I'm, you know, entitled to. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, first of all, um, I mean, I think just acknowledging the fact that I wasn't raised with millions and millions of dollars at my disposal. So I don't know if I would have been different. Um, I'm sure I would have for sure been different in some way. Uh, but it's definitely, um, it definitely was my parents' mindset, their philosophy um, that influenced me so much in this way. So I remember being a, a younger child, maybe 10 or 11. Um, my dad didn't yet own the company. He didn't yet manage the company. His grandfather did. He was just an employee there. And so even his grandfather made him start at the bottom of the, the kind of food chain there. He was like, you have to go out in the truck with the team. You have to climb the telephone pole. You have to crawl under a house. You have to see what it's like to, to do the hard piece of the work, I think, um, which is really what set their philosophy in motion sort of for us always knowing my brother did the same thing. He now works for the company. He did the same thing. My nephew is now working for the company. He spent the last two summers um, in and around college in a truck with the guys going out and installing cable television. So I think it's for one thing, I, I have no idea what the Hiltons did with that regard, but I know that what my parents did and, and their grandparents, their parents, and my dad was actually great, raised by his grandparents. So it was like his parents um, did is they made sure we fully understood that whole process, right? You don't just start at the top. You don't get to skip over all of the steps because then at some level, you have a different sort of understanding, compassion, and appreciation for every single person on their team that it takes to pull this off from the customer through all of the, you know, the, the members of their, their staff and their employees and that kind of thing. So I think that is one piece of it that really, um, you don't get to start at the top. And I definitely didn't start at the top when I started over with my company. I mean, it is hard work. But what I was also going to say is I remember at that time when my dad was not the boss, he was just an employee, he was on the team. And I remember us driving to another town about 30 minutes away, my mom and I to buy groceries and to buy our clothes. And we would literally go to buy my clothes at Walmart, a good Arkansas company, and we would put them on layaway. So we would literally not walk out of the store with my clothes. Right now, I'm used to walking in any store and spending, you know, I may buy a $700 pair of shoes if I want to. Um, and I take it with me. And I fully know the value of that $700 pair of shoes because we would go and we would put $100 of clothing on layaway. And we would drive, we'd drive back over and make a payment on it. You know, and then we'd come back in like two or three weeks and I would get to get my clothes and I would get to have my spring wardrobe. And it was so fun. And out of all of my childhood memories, something like that is so much more fun for me to think about, like the what it took to work our way to getting access to those things, as opposed to now kind of taking for granted the fact that I can literally walk into the store and buy myself or my daughter something that is quite expensive and just pay cash or write a check for it and leave with it. Um, so I think all of those parts and pieces played into it. So I would suspect that there was some level of that missing possibly from um, other people that lived an affluent life that maybe their parents were a little too easy on them. And I suspect I'm too easy on my daughter in that way, in a lot of ways. And it's, it's easier. It's easier to just give kids what they want, say yes to it. Uh, but you're missing all of the richness of exactly what we're talking about. 
Like, thank yeah. you for the reminder, actually. <laughs> I need to check into my parenting well, I, I a little bit. Were, well, I, I guess you were, you pretty much answered my next question for me, which was going to be how has this uh, influenced the, the way that you've raised your kids? But uh, one other question I have, I mean, you are from the South. I, yeah. you know, as an Indian person spent seven years living in a small Texas town. And what I realized from that experience is that there's no way you could escape race relations. Uh, yes. And this was in the, you know, mid 90s, early late 80s. So mm-hmm. I, I wonder, it, particularly in the time when you grew up being in rural Arkansas of all places, um, what I mean, what were racial dynamics like and how did that, you know, what, what did your parents teach you about that? OK, this is a great question. So I love this. They taught us the exact same thing that they taught us about treating all the customers with respect. They taught us the exact same thing about um, and it was mainly just a black white issue at the time, right? Yeah. Like we lived in a town that was probably it was pretty close to 50 50, probably. Um, and went to a public school. There were about 50 people or 60 people in my class and my brother's class. He's older than me. Um, my brother played on the football team and every, every day, honestly, every day he played basketball, football, every day, our yard, our house was filled with all of his teammates black kids, white kids, all the kids. Um, and they're really, we didn't see that much of a difference uh, at the time. My mom was cooking meals for everybody, feeding everybody. They were spending the night at our house. But we also were highly aware of things like poverty in the African-American community. And I remember, there's a funny story. Gosh, you're bringing up so many good memories. So when my brother was about, oh, I think he was a junior or senior in high school. Um, the phone rang at like 11 o'clock at night and it was one of my brother's best friends, Robert. And he came from a very, very poor family, broken family. There was a point where he had lived in a car. Um, and I remember there was, it had even been a point where my brother and I wanted my parents to adopt him. And I remember crying over it because he would come to our house sometimes and stay for two or three days and take showers and my mom would feed him. And, and, but my parents were very careful not to overstep the boundaries of like feeling like somehow they knew better or were entitled. And I remember they would tell me, and I don't, I haven't thought about this in years. They would say, you know, we can't, we can't adopt him essentially probably like he's not up for adoption um, kind of that that I didn't fully understand. So they tried to play a role and support him. But the phone rings at 11 o'clock one night. I remember being in my room. I was probably in like the fifth or sixth grade. I hear my dad answer the phone and he's like, hey, Robert, what's going on? Okay, where are you? Okay, I'll be there in a minute. And so it was Robert telling my dad, hey, me and a bunch of guys, we went over to uh, this town about 30 minutes away, have a drive-in movie theater at like midnight or 11 o'clock. They play sort of a racy, I don't think it was X-rated, but some kind of racy film and these guys snuck in and they got caught. And he's like, I've, I'm, I'm at the police station. I need you to come get me. And my dad's like, okay, I'll be right there. And, and then he goes, oh, by the way, Lang is here with me, which is my brother. <laughs> and my dad was like, what? My son is arrested for sneaking in a, a movie theater. But it was so funny because I'm sure my brother was like, you call, dude. I'm not calling them. Uh, but it was so funny and interesting. And And so my parents just really taught us that people are people. Yet what you're saying is, we can't, we couldn't not see the, the, we couldn't see, we couldn't not see race. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm reading a book right now called waking up white. I don't know if you, if you know the book and one of my friends who is a doctor, um, an African-American guy, we always have these conversations and I'm like, is this racist? 
Is this right? Can I say this? Because I can trust him, right? Because yeah. we don't know. We have no, like, I, I know I'm not like doing like the real egregious, like racial slurs or thinking right, negative right. things about people. But sometimes just by means of only seeing something through your own lens, you have no idea. Uh-huh. Um, and so I think it's such a great question because it would be a lie to pretend like I didn't see race and didn't see difference yet. I had the beauty of parents who loved people for people and who loved yeah. giving and sharing and kind of what ours, what's ours is yours. And if you need me, and I still love this. I think all the time, I mean, I, no one knows how much my parents give and they don't want them to, but I know a lot of times, well, I don't even know, but I know some of the things they give and some of the money they give and things they give to their church and other people in need. And it blows my mind. And I've thought about this even recently. I thought, I wonder how much they were giving when they were my age or had my amount of money because I feel like I might be behind in that category. They're so generous. Um, and they've just always had an abundant mindset of like, if we give, if we love, if we support, it's how it all comes back to us. Not just financially, but but you know the fulfillment, the the feelings, all the things that we're looking for in life. So I'm very very fortunate. But I love that you asked this question, and I think it's something that people are afraid to talk about. Right? Like even yeah. in saying this, I'm like, am I saying something wrong? <laughs> like, have I just offended people? Is it okay for me? You know, like I'm like, is it? Can I say black? Do I have to say right. African American? And that's coming from not, and that's like a true curiosity, mm-hmm. um, which I love. But at the end of the day, and I think you're right, we see it in this pandemic that people are people are people are people. Yeah. Um, and I love that that's really where I came from. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, 
You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, I think it's it's such a, an odd contrast to what you typically find um, in the South. Again, and keep in mind, this is my own bias from having had the experience of being an Indian kid in a predominantly white town. But I think mm-hmm. the thing that struck me most was how blatantly racist people were. And yet sometimes oh, they weren't yeah. racist towards me. Uh, you know, I remember I had a friend whose parents, when we're not talking educated, like, you know, like, you know, sort of redneck bumpkins, these were the most educated and wealthy people in town. Yes. And blatantly racist. It was, you know, I would hear things in his mom's car that, you know, I mean, but it's funny that you mentioned, you know, you being white, because I remember even, you know, I had an experience where we we drove to Colorado, where we, you know, walked into this hotel bar because we were just, you know, on our way to Boulder. And everybody in there was white. And my roommate noticed that everybody stopped talking the moment that I walked in. (laughs) <laughs> and to me, I was just oblivious to it yeah. because I was just like, I'm tired. I want to drink and let's get a burger and get this over with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still to me, it's funny because I think what, this was the funniest moment I ever had. Like, I remember I did a, a TEDx talk and my speakers video emailed me back and they said, yeah, there's only one problem with this talk. All the pictures of the kids in your slides were white. I was like, wait a minute. Doesn't it matter that an Indian guy is giving the talk? <laughs> I was like, who cares if the kids are white? You They're know? like, what's but, wrong with you? Why did you only pick but, white kids? Did you not notice? Well, uh. that's a funny thing, right? To me, I'm like completely blind to that. But a yeah, white person sees that and says, oh, this could be perceived as somebody who's, you know, insensitive. Mm-hmm. The other funniest thing I ever had was somebody who emailed me complaining about the lack of diversity uh, of guests on the show once. I was like, wait a minute. You realize you're a white woman emailing an Indian guy about the lack of black guests on the show. <laughs> I'm sorry, but this is ridiculous. Oh, that's so uh, interesting. It's so it's fascinating. Not, you know, yeah, and it's it, not, and again, I'm not making fun of it, but you kind of have no. to laugh, right? You kind of have to find the humor in it because it can be absurd. But I think you're right. And I think um, my daughter and I still talk about this all the time. She's 14. Thankfully, one of the things that I have loved as she's grown up, and I've said kind of for years, is I do think there is much less, um, you know, racism that is... Um, kind of habitual in in her, her friends, her age, her generation. 
yet you still see it all the time. And it's definitely coming from the conditioning of the parents and in their households, because it's not something we naturally do. We have to be taught that. And, and so I do, we talk about it all the time. Um, we know, and, and it's interesting, like we know the people that are in our circles and are our friends that, that practice more, you know, of this racial bias in their thinking, in their homes, in their day to day. And we have discussions about it. Um, it's kind of, it's a fascinating conversation, but in general, I love that. I see much more, um, just open-mindedness and lack of, um, you know, kind of just lack of interest in, in caring about race or sexual orientation or some of the other things that I see a lot of progress with her, her age group, but it's, it definitely, um, is easy to, to train that out of your children if you have a certain belief. So it just goes to show how much influence we really do have on our kids. It's definitely a conversation she and I have. It's also true. I was thinking about when you were talking, I wish that I didn't see color and I still see it. Right. And that's kind of what you're saying about this other lady. Like I, Mm -hmm. I don't act on it. I don't, I intentionally choose to not, uh, to not, be unkind or judge based on people's skin, but I wish I couldn't see it, mm-hmm. um, which is a fascinating thing to think about. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I'd be lying to you if I told you that even Indian people don't see color. Like, trust right. me, there are plenty of racist things that I've heard my parents say over the years. Uh, you know, and it's funny because we, you know, we always jokingly say, like, you want to find out how racist your Indian parents are, bring home a black girl or a Muslim girl. <laughs> then you'll, yeah, that's right. the step. Well, yeah. I had this conversation with my, um, I, I check myself a lot. I can't believe you are really good at getting people to say things that are totally honest. I had this conversation <laughs> with my massage therapist and friend, Julianne, not too long ago. And we were talking in general, just about kids. She has a little girl who's six or seven. Um, and I, I told her, I check myself on stuff all the time. I'm like, okay, Toby, how would you feel if Ellison brought home a redneck that is super conservative. How would you feel if Toby, I mean, if Ellison brought home um, a black guy that she's dating, how would you feel if Ellison brought home a girl that she's dating? How would you feel if Ellison brought home a Muslim? You know, like exactly what you're saying. And, and I check myself because I'm like, where, because of course there are biases in all of us from some, some, to some degree. And I literally ask myself those hard questions. And I think most people don't ask that. And of course, we know the reason that people feel the way they do is because of fear. Um, Fear of people being different than them. Fear of not having your exact expectations met of who your child's going to grow up and be or marry. And so I am constantly checking myself and saying, well, first of all, that's her decision. Uh, secondly, my job is to love her so much that, of course, I want to protect her her well-being. If someone was being violent or something, that would be an issue. But I, I just really love to check myself on these things. And it is a really interesting exercise and a hard thing to do. Mm. Um, but I, I'm sure that's what my parents were doing at some degree. They were yeah. asking themselves hard questions and seeing what their answers were, right? Yeah. Well, well, let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit and get into the actual work that you do. Um, as I said, I think the, the thing that really struck me and the thing that made me want to talk to you was that, you know, you are an interior designer and I started to wonder how you could take the concepts of interior design and apply them to a person's life. Awesome. That is a huge shift of gears. Okay. So 
It's also an inside job is the answer. So it's really not a total departure. So the interesting thing is um, when I think about an environment, it's all about how it makes me feel. It's how it makes me show up. It's how it makes me be productive or not productive, right? Um, And everything from clutter to even just beauty and what beauty does to a human being. Um, and how it makes us feel, how it makes us um, more creative, how it makes us more attentive to detail. All of these, those things matter. So I think a lot of times um, we look at a room, we look at a space that's maybe unlike the one we have that we're aspiring to. And we don't even understand yet that the reason that we are drawn to it is because of how it makes us feel, right? And how it mm. makes us show up. So that's my starting point for um, a room, a space, an office, a home. And I know that if we're on this kind of personal development path, if we're on how to make me be the best version of myself, um, and honestly, all of the things we've just talked about are included in that. How to make me be the kindest person, how to make me be the best parent, how to make me be the best entrepreneur, make the most money, serve the most people. Um, How I feel in my space every day is critical to that, what kind of sleep I get, Um, you know, whether I feel lethargic or motivated, where I'm, whether I'm constantly distracted to do things like watch TV instead of, you know, doing, making a, a course or a program or coaching someone, all of it really matters to the end result of the life that I'm really essentially designing, um, for myself and for other people. Well, I think that to me, what I've always said is that you want the environment that you do your work in, particularly when it comes to your creative work, to not be a reflection of who you are today, but the person you want to become. Oh, that's uh, fun. Yeah. And I remember, you know, this was you know, one of my uh, friends, uh, one of my best friends is actually an interior designer as well. And I remember telling her, I said, Charmaine, I would, if I had a million dollar recording studio, I would hang up frame prints of all the people that I've interviewed with their album covers. And she said, you don't need a million dollar recording studio for that, honey. You need some Ikea frames. <laughs> and I'm like, you're right. So I literally have frame prints of the people that I've, you know, of some of my most inspiring interviews on my yeah, wall. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I noticed that, that that environment is such a huge thing that, it, you know, it, it shapes behavior. But um, like, how does this differ for people? Like when you work with different people, you know, what differs for them? How do they find themselves in the mess that they're in? Because... Like I'm finding that there are common patterns to everybody I talk to about productivity issues. The first one, of course, being environment. The next, of course, being the environment that is their digital environment. Yeah. Um, So how how are people different? Yeah. I mean, when you, I mean, like, what are the patterns that you see in people that? What are the consistent patterns that you see when it comes to this? I guess. Um, So probably the number one problem I see is just lack of awareness in general in both of those things. Right? Lack of awareness getting on sort of the busyness train, the, the, the treadmill that everybody's on, this kind of output, um, always doing. And when you're coming from that space and, you know, time scarcity, money scarcity, already behind, you're not being intentional at all about your digital environment, your physical environment, um, either one. And so it takes creating some space um, I, d- I love to do this even just with journaling, um, getting some ideas on paper and really starting to make intentional choices about what you want in your life. And, and you can trace all of that back to your environment, right? So if I'm like, I'm feeling especially agitated today, or I feel like I never have time to get to the things that really matter in my life, or I wake up every day already behind, 
the way I start to dig into that for me or a client, because these are the kind of things they tell me, and I've, I've experienced this myself, is to, is to slow down a minute and let's start asking some questions. Why? You know, like, what is your schedule like? How much time do you spend in your home? Like, wh- like even going into the environment and noticing, is there a lot of clutter? Do things work well for them? Even the frustration that comes from a poorly designed space or a dated space. I remember before we, we remodeled our current home, we lived here for a couple of years. We bought it quickly, moved in. It was very dated. And I was like, oh, I'll get to that soon. And noticing the toll it took on me, even from things like, going to put the dishes away and the size plates you have don't fit in the upper cabinetry, the door won't close. Uh Um, Like that's a design issue, right? But that level of little frustration and agitation all day, every day leads up to uh, the feelings that we're feeling that are keeping us from being our best selves. So Uh just anytime we have to expend a lot of extra energy or we have to go sort of into a negative headspace because we're frustrated about we can't find our other shoe or we can't put the plate in the cabinet or um, we don't have what we need to support us or it's too bright in our rooms at night and we can't really cover the windows well so we don't get a good night's sleep. Every single one of those things, which are all design related, start to take a toll on us. And the same way that the environment and the electronics and digital piece in the environment also takes a toll on us. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm asking questions like, where do you watch TV? How often are you like looking at blue light right up until the moment you go to bed? All of this is going to impact how you show up every day. Yeah. You know, when I I think about this um, idea of environment, uh, you mentioned sort of this concept of intentional choices. And I I feel like I hear the word intention over and over and over again in, in virtually every book that I read. How do you define what an intentional choice is? Because as you were saying that, I was thinking to myself, okay, I want to write a blog post called The Power of Intentional Choices, but I probably should define what the hell an intentional choice exactly. is Exactly. Yeah, I agree so, with you because they, we lose the meaning when things become these buzzwords, right? Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like self-care. Like we could, we could make a list right now together of the ones that everybody's saying, self-care, intention, yeah, well, all, Daniel all these things. Daniel once told me that, you know, a cheeseburger, whiskey, and a cigarette could be considered self-care at the right moments. I love that. <laughs> it's so true. And I think that that's what we're talking about. So it's making a conscious, deliberate decision for yourself in the realm of, you know, awareness and like essentially where I currently am and where I want to go and like assessing that and understanding. And even I think taking responsibility is a huge piece of intention. Um, because so often we're in a headspace of it's somebody else's fault or it's because I don't have this thing I need. And anytime that we take responsibility off of us and put it onto something else, including our environment, essentially the environment's the villain and we're villain and we're the victim. And you cannot move forward in victim mode and victim mindset. So it's really fully and consciously assessing determining where you are right now, and then making a conscious choice that moves you in a direction you've decided to go in. Mm, Wow. I like that. So that naturally begs the question, um, you work with individuals, you know, I see this pattern, you know, across, you know, online courses. And I'd asked Ramit Sethi about this, like, why do you end up with, you know, a Selena Sue? And why do you end up with students of yours that don't do anything with your courses, even though they spend thousands (laughs) of dollars? And he said, that's human nature. But I mean, you work one-on-one with people, like what is the difference between your clients who get results and the ones who don't? Because I think that that's unanimous to every person who coaches anybody. It's like, yeah, I have clients who literally I'm, 
you know, an expensive therapist. This is why I actually don't do one-on-one work with anybody because I would suck at that. Uh, <laughs> I don't have enough empathy for that because I'm just not tolerant of it. I was like, I don't want to hear mm-hmm. about your emotional problems, which is why I'm a terrible one-on-one coach. That's interesting. So I actually struggle a little bit with the empathy piece myself, which I think sometimes serves me. Um, like if you're looking at my strength finders, you know, the your top or your all 34 of your strengths, I feel like empathy is like third from the bottom for me, which is fascinating. <laughs> um, but it's sort of allows me to show up in a little bit more of a place of tough love. And so I am very much a get to the, I mean, as you can tell, how many times have I said, take responsibility today? Um, from either what my parents taught me, some level of doing it for myself about making money and creating money, even to what we're talking about in our homes. Um, The difference is exactly pretty much what I just said of, are you going to stay in victim mode? Are you going to blame something outside of you? Are you going to look for change to come outside of you, as we've already talked about today? Or are you going to take responsibility for being the change? You know, we've heard that quote, but all of us have like, be the change you want to see in the world. Well, I'd love you to be the change you want to see in your life Um, because it's truly about deciding. Just prior to having this call with you, I was on a coaching call with one of my clients um, who I've worked with for a while and she's still struggling to show up for herself. And I said, you know, at some point we can literally psychoanalyze, we can we can break through and bust through every excuse. We can un, you know, kind of unravel every bad habit. And at the end of the day, it's just, are you going to do it or are you not going to do it? Are you going to decide? And the, the definition I love of decide is to cut off, to truly cut off other options. And so when I watch people still allowing all of the other options, it's tentative. It's, you know, if they put it in their schedule for themselves to work out or to, create a lead magnet for their company or to go live on Instagram or to go design their bedroom and, you know, get new order, new bedding or something, any part of the things that I do for people. Um, are you still allowing it to be tentative or have you actually cut off all other options and you have decided to move forward? So I see all of this, oh my gosh, the suffering that we create as humans, allowing negotiations to happen all the time. Um, and we're, we're not fully committed and, and, and we're telling ourselves we want something. We're even telling ourselves we're committed to it. And it's really not true. I even prefer to call it a lie when I'm talking to myself, cause it's more of a, a pattern interrupt to call it something as bold as a lie. Like interesting how you're lying to yourself that you actually want to eat clean, you know, five days a week when ironically you're choosing something else most of the time. Um, and so, yeah, I think that is the difference. Like, are you willing to decide and to do it? And part of that means that you have to be willing to be a beginner at something and fail at it. Like I'm choosing this knowing it's not going to work the first time. I may have to fail 50 times to get to the vision I see in my head, but I know, and I'm taking full responsibility that that's what I'm signing up for. And I'm going to keep choosing that intentionally, right? By choice every day. Wow. So, you know, what what I appreciate about this uh, and this whole idea of making a decision, it it reminds me of a story that, uh, you know, I had an experience with a mentor where he sat me down and we started working together and he made me make a list of all the things I had done up until that point to make money or to, to grow my business. And then he said, do you want to do any of this stuff in five years? And I said, no. He said, then stop doing it now. 
Because I love that, right? He said that every day that I continued on that path was one more day he would have to work his ass off <laughs> to exactly. make sure that I didn't pull down that path. Yes. But it was such a powerful thing, but it was so difficult because uh, I think that, you know, and right after that, like, you know, I saw results in my life and business that I'd never seen before um, because I, my, my efforts weren't so scattered. Right. Yes. And like some belief that that kind of goes to that belief of at some point when X happens, fill in the blank, then I will start being that person, which is kind of what you were even talking about with your environment and like living, creating the environment of the person you want to be. So I watch people all the time. And that's kind of what you're saying is like, I have to do all this stuff now. But at some point when I have money or a following or uh, you know, a, a good enough client or a big enough budget to work with with my clients' homes or whatever. At, at, when X happens, which is still that extrinsic thing, then I'll start showing up that way. But until then, I'm going to believe that I have to do all these other things. And that I love what you're saying because what people do is then live their whole life in the other things because they never get to the point where they believe enough has happened, enough money, enough time, enough fame, enough followers, enough recognition. Like, it's not like you just get, wake up one day and we're like, okay, we're there. Now I can be that other person. You have to be the other person now. Um, and I, I think that is so wise. I love that you said that. Amazing. Well, I think that makes a beautiful place to wrap up our conversation. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Being willing to make mistakes. Showing up imperfectly. Like, it's interesting. It's essentially redefining unmistakable, right? Because I think we go into this perfectionist mentality with most everything we do. And as I was just saying, we're unwilling to be beginners at something. And I love that if we really think about the creative process, it's all about sort of failing your way to success, right? It's being gutsy and brave and bold to try something, to see what works, to uh, being willing to step outside of what you know and do it even if it fails. And so I think it's totally redefining that whole concept of a mistake even being a bad thing and being willing to show up imperfectly to get to really kind of the point of where you're trying to go. Amazing. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your wisdom and insights with our listeners. Uh, this has been wonderful. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and uh, everything else that you're up to? I think the most fun place to find me is on Instagram because definitely as an interior designer, I have lots of eye candy, um, lots of bright, colorful interiors that people enjoy seeing. So at Toby Fairley on Instagram. And the great thing about Instagram is we all, I think, or a lot of us are conditioned to using our DMs just like text messages. So it's kind of the best of both worlds. You can see what I do, but you can actually have a real conversation with me there too, um, straight in my Instagram inbox per se. So check me out over there. Let me know what you think. Let me know how I can help. Um, and yeah, I'm excited to hear from people. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming. Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. 
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator, that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.